I'm Gordon Stewart, and this is episode four of Tales from Weird Scotland. Scotland's a very ancient land, one of the oldest kingdoms in Europe, which first emerges in the ninth century. It's a land of stories, of folklore and mysterious events, and a very, very long history of weird. It's a land of contrasts, from the rugged terrain of the highlands, the now sadly empty places, to the rolling hills and bustling cities of the lowlands. There are many places worth visiting again in time. And here, we present an A to Z of our favourite things to encounter along the way. 26 all at once perhaps would be a little too much, a little indulgent. So then here is our first 13, a number that feels strangely appropriate. We'll begin with A. A is for Aldern, a small village in Nairnshire in the north of Scotland. In 1645, a year of Black Death in Scotland, a battle was fought here between the Covenanters and the Royalists. Politics and religion combined to the worst possible effects, with around 2,000 deaths. A bloody scene to behold in the long civil wars of the 17th century. One person who may have seen such terrible sights was a local woman, Isabel Gowdy. Aldern would become infamous for her confession and trial for witchcraft in 1662. The most bizarre, detailed, voluntary confession of the Scottish witch hunts, much of what is now claimed about historic and modern-day witchcraft comes from Isabel. Debate still continues, however, as to how voluntary her confession actually was. There was a local witch pricker operating in Nairnshire at this time called John Dixon, and John Dixon might well have been involved. Witch prickers, as their name suggests, inserted metal pins or pricks into alleged witches to identify a witch's mark or devil's mark insensitive to pain. Dixon, one of the detestable band of frauds who profited from this legalised torture, being paid six shillings a day for finding witches, was later discovered to be a woman in disguise. At least six people were executed because of her work. But back to Isabel Gowdy. Margaret Murray, in her highly influential at the time 1921 book The Witch Cult in Western Europe, was heavily inspired by the details of the account of Isabel Gowdy. Very little is known about Isabel until her confession, 
but it's assumed she was local to the area of Loch Loy, if not the village of Ardern itself. She was probably of the farm labouring class. Even if she was not subjected to the work of a pricker, she was probably detained in the local toll booth or prison and sleep deprived. We cannot tell how much of the confession was suggested to her by the authorities, hallucinated or imagined. False memories may have been instrumental, but so too could have been the involvement of the particularly zealous local Presbyterian minister of the time. The rich illustration of her confession includes much contemporary folklore and some unique aspects Using a frog to plough a field so that a neighbour's crops fail is one such detail. Grave robbing to use a dead child's remains in malicious magic, moulding clay effigies of her enemies, attending witches' sabbats and keeping familiars are all, well, familiar details. Making a demonic pact with Satan sealed with a kiss and carnal relations. Shape-shifting into a hare, again these are common elements of confessions. But her description of the deal himself as being very cold to the touch, with forked or cloven feet, make this particular description stand out, as do her descriptions of his <clears throat> genitalia. Her description of a coven of 13 members also is a different important aspect of the confession which Margaret Murray used to confirm her now largely discredited theory that witchcraft had been alive and well throughout in the form of a nature-based ancient religion. Nevertheless, aspects of detail from the confession were adopted into and adapted into some modern witchcraft practices. Her inclusion of a wealth of fairy lore in the heady confession also differs from others. The king and queen of the fairies are mentioned, lurking in their palace within a local hill. Water bulls, a Scottish traditional demon. Magical rides on elvish horses made out of straw magical charms to cure or kill, all are added to the heady mix which to our modern eyes may seem a little ludicrous. And the outcome of all this lurid detail? We simply don't know. Astonishingly, the record of what happened to Isabel and the many others she named as fellow witches is now lost. It can, however, be fairly safely assumed that she was found guilty, taken to the local place of execution and strangled, worry it, against a stake and then burned. History may not record the outcome, but this unusual and damning mixture of fairy lore, folklore and demonic detail will now long be remembered as a terrifying peak in this dark part of Scotland's story.
is for Belichen. Now remembered, if it is at all, as the most haunted house in Scotland, Belichen was allegedly haunted by all manner of spirits from ghostly nuns to poltergeists. In many ways, the alleged hauntings are reminiscent now of the infamy that would be generated much later at Borley Rectory in Essex, England. Built for the Stuart family in 1806, outside the small village of Grantley, Perthshire, the house was a fairly plain, late Georgian block, but built on the site of a home that dated back to the 15th century at least. Major Robert Stuart inherited the place in 1834 and rented it out to tenants while he served in the British Army in India. Returning to his family home in 1850, he lived here alone with a number of beloved dogs, 14 it is said, and a housekeeper. It was in India that he is thought to have developed a keen interest in spirituality and, in particular, reincarnation, and is reported to have claimed that, on his death, he would return to life as a dog. Generally acknowledged by the locals as a harmless eccentric, his religious nature was thought to be sincere, if a little exotic. Sarah, his housekeeper, was said to have died unexpectedly at the age of 27. Local gossip had this death down as mysterious, and it was suggested in whispered tones that she had died in the master's bedchamber. Although this rumour may date to after the hauntings would become very public. On Major Robert's death, his nephew John Skinner inherited the estate, including the kennels. Said to be fearing that his uncle would indeed come back in spirit as one of his beloved hounds, it's said that John had the entire kennel of animals shot. This barbaric act is suggested as the reason why Major Robert came back to haunt Belichen as a disembodied spirit. It was in 1876 that the first haunting was reported by a maid. John's wife also claimed to smell and hear dogs in the house, describing how a dog brushed against her legs in the Major's old study. There was no dog present, of course. Distinct rapping or knocking sounds began to echo around the house, whilst unseen people were heard having frantic, whispered arguments in apparently empty rooms. Screams were also heard, including by a Jesuit priest who was visiting at the time, and domestic staff began to hand in their notices and flee or so it was said. John was himself killed in London in 1895, shortly after he and his estate manager had been interrupted in their study by three ominous loud thuds caused by something unseen in the same room. The house was leased out again to tenants in 1896, 
but this new family, called the Heavens, managed to stay only a couple of months before the continued hauntings also supposedly drove them away. Bedclothes had been ripped from their beds, loud banging sounds reverberated around the hallways and corridors at night. The daughter of the house, terrified by the sound of an invisible presence limping around her bed. It was noted that Major Stewart walked with a permanent leg injury on his return from India. Controversially investigated in 1897 by the Society of Psychical Research, led by the occult enthusiast Marquis of Butte and the later infamously fraudulent psychic Ada Goodrich Freer. This only added to the tales of hauntings and apparitions, which would become florid newspaper stories. Their Ouija board, seances and apparent automatic writing added to the tangled stories of ghostly nuns, terrifying noises, and a phantom hound. The society's reputation was to suffer after the integrity of some of the witnesses was challenged, and it would later denounce Freer. Other members of the 35-strong party in attendance insisted that there was no evidence of any paranormal activity at the house, no local reputation of mystery or hauntings, and that the entire event was manufactured by supposed mediums looking to capitalise on the publicity. Abandoned in the 1930s, most of the house fell into decay, and, as is so often the case, after a mysterious fire in 1963, the house has largely been demolished, except for some wings which were formerly used by the house domestic staff. Some say the Phantom Hound is there still. Oh. And the wings that remain are now holiday accommodation. C is for Cold Shields Loch and its terrifying water bull. Once part of the vast Abbotsford estate where the 19th century author Sir Walter Scott built his own personal fantasy home. Culled Shields Loch is located not far from the small town of Melrose in the Scottish borders. The estate that surrounds Scott's Conundrum Castle is important for its pioneering landscape and beautiful walks. Scott's great passion was for the land, and in particular for forestry, and his great planned arboretum. Abbotsford became one of the first and largest reimagined woodlands anywhere. In its heyday, the estate reached some 1400 acres, 
as Scott bought farm after farm, creating the landscape visible today. Bankruptcy would see the estate shrink back to the 120 acres looked after by the Abbotsford Trust today. An army of volunteers helps the Trust to restore and maintain a vast network of paths and the historic gardens and house. Many dignitaries would call on Scott during his lifetime here, often much to his annoyance. Given his global fame as an author, the visiting book in his house notes such celebrities as Oscar Wilde among its pages. The estates contain as much romance and history as the mansion. At one point, the lands included an area promoted as being the haunt of the legendary Thomas the Rhymer. Scott allowed and actively encouraged free access to his estate, except for the private gardens immediately next to the house. This was unlike many other landowners at that time, or indeed since. Another visitor hosted by Scott may be of interest to those of a slightly gloomy, supernatural disposition. Washington Irving, author of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle, visited Scott in 1817. Paying homage to Scott, Irving would then travel on to Newstead Abbey in England, the Gothic seat of the late Lord Byron. His journal of the visit with Scott was published in 1835 and evokes a warm image of the man and his house, his dogs and Grimalkin the cat. The evening passed away delightfully in this quaint-looking apartment, half-study, half-drawing-room. Scott read several passages from the old romance of Arthur with a fine, deep, sonorous voice and a gravity of tone that seemed to suit the antiquated black-letter volume. It was a rich treat to hear such a work read by such a person in such a place and his appearance as he sat reading in a large armchair with his favorite hound Maida at his feet and surrounded by books and relics and border trophies would have formed an admirable and most charismatic picture. While Scott was reading, the sage Grimalkin, already mentioned, had taken his seat in a chair beside the fire and remained with fixed eyes and a grave demeanor, as if listening to the reader. I observed to Scott that his cat seemed to have a black-letter taste in literature. Scott accompanied Irving around his lands, including up a carriage route which travels uphill from Abbotsford towards Cold Shields. It's a very pleasant route. Thick forests surrounding the road for most of the way. Culdshields Loch was known then, and now, as being a rather special place, because of the water spirit, or bogle, that lies within its depths. It was also said to be bottomless. The sprite that haunted this place was a fearsome and enormous water bull, a supernatural being that is now less well known than its cousins, the Kelpies or Selkies. Water bulls 
known in Gaelic Scotland as Tariff Uske, were widely believed to be real well into the 19th century. Said to be malevolent or benign, these creatures lurked in the depths of lochs but could shapeshift into human form and wander on land. They were feared but also thought useful as they were less of a threat to humanity than their enemies, the terrifying water horses or Ech Uske. Perhaps a remnant of pre-Christian ancient animal worship, water bulls lingered in the popular imagination for centuries. Scott mentioned the spirit to Irving as they paddled across the loch in a small boat. Whether Irving believed in the tale or not is unknown, but it was certainly something he recalled in his journal. And the water bull? It hasn't been seen for some time. Perhaps it's moved on, or perhaps it's just waiting. D is for Dechment Law and UFO Attacks, a 1970s chiller and possibly the most reliable alien encounter report ever. Listen to episode 3 of Weird Scotland for more on this, a legendary UFO attack at Dechment Hill in West Lothian. is for Eden's Hall, a broch built upon an older fort. This was said to have been the lair of a giant, the Red Etting, although it may originally have been named after Woden, chief god of the Germanic pantheon. This is a very important historical site in southeast Scotland not too far from the coast overlooking the cold North Sea. A hill fort was built here some 2,500 years ago, and you can still see the earthworks where the wooden ramparts would have stood. Inside the oval outer defences, the foundations of smaller buildings can still be glimpsed, and in one corner, the round stone foundations of a 2nd century broch. Brochs are unique to the land we now know as Scotland, and there are around 500 of them, mostly in the north of the country. There are very few this far south, making this ruin a rare survivor. Tall circular towers with inner and outer walls, in between which stone stairs spiralled upwards, they are enigmatic and mysterious still. Eden's Hall is mostly gone now, standing under two metres tall. Up until the 19th century, it was widely known as Wooden's Hall, named for the Saxon form of Odin, until the popularity of the tale of Red Etten spread. 
remembered in The Blue Fairy Book by Andrew Lang from 1889, a runaway bestseller of traditional tales from around Europe that led to numerous sequels. Red Etten was an Irish giant who apparently kidnapped the daughter of the King of Scotland, keeping her prisoner in his hall. Etten was red in colour, a shade often associated with evil in folktales, and he had uh, three heads. Or maybe his enormous dog did. Accounts differ. Which isn't surprising. If you were fleeing with your life from either, you might not stop to note accurate descriptions. A simple shepherd's son, or miller's son, or the third son of a poor widow, defeats the giant with the help of the fae and saves the princess, marrying her at the end of the tale. There may be no historical reason for linking an Irish giant with an impressive historic hillfort and broch, and perhaps the more intriguing mystery lies in lost history. Who built the fort and the broch? What were their names? Where were they from? Answers to these questions we will probably never know. F is for Fortingal. Home to perhaps the oldest tree in Europe, the Fortingal yew is between three to nine thousand years old. This Glenlyon village in Perthshire is surrounded by an abundance of prehistoric archaeology and is reputed to be Pontius Pilate's birthplace. Yes, that Pontius Pilate. It's truly picturesque, an enchanting place in the bleak grandeur of Glenlyon. The yew tree itself may have been part of a pagan religious complex, which can still be glimpsed in the aligned standing stones and cairns that have survived. Certainly this place was considered holy as early as the late 7th century, when tradition states that a Christian church was established here. In the graveyard can be glimpsed many headstones bearing the name MacDougall, which is unusual outside of their traditional clan homeland around Oban and the land of Lorne on Scotland's west coast. Legend says that when plague arrived in the port of Oban in the 13th century, a small band of clansfolk set off into the hills to find a safe place to wait, and they've been here, in the middle of Scotland, ever since. Among many ancient monuments nearby, Caran the Marav, the Stone of Death, marks the graves of 14th century plague victims, buried by an old woman, the sole survivor. Another marks where St. Adamnan forced a 7th century plague into a standing stone to save the people. There has been a lot of plague over the years. Apparently, Karnamarav was the centre of Fortingal's Halloween until the 1920s. 
Fires were lit in gorse around the mound, through which local youths would jump. Apparently ended by a local landowner concerned his grouse, to shoot, would have no cover. There are many sacred monumental stones in the Glen. An alternative name is Glen Du Nagarav Clack, the dark valley of the rough stones. One very special site is said to be the oldest pagan site in continuous use in the entire country, Tai Namborach, House of the Old Man. In Glen Kalyach, the Valley of the Hag, is a little stone shrine. A family of seven water-eroded stones live in the house. At Beltane, they are brought out for the summer, and every Samhain they return in sight, and cursed be those who meddle with them. G is for ghosts. There are so very many stories of hauntings, spirits and uncanny places, it's difficult to choose only a few. In the Scottish borders, we have a full-blown celebrity ghost in the shape of Sir Walter Scott himself, the superstar author of his day. His magnificent Abbotsford house is said to be visited by him still. The dining room where he died, overlooking his beloved River Tweed, has reputedly hosted his spirit regularly. Far less happy is the shade of Bald Agnes, who is said to haunt Edinburgh's royal palace of Holyrood House. The spirit of Agnes Sampson, arrested for witchcraft in 1590 and tortured before confessing, is said to haunt the royal house. Interrogated by the king, James VI himself, she was stripped of her clothes and hair while the search for a devil's mark took place. Implicated into the notorious North Berwick witches, who were said to have almost killed the king by conjuring a storm around his ship on the North Sea, all were found guilty and burned. The restless spirit, perhaps proclaiming her innocence, has haunted the monarchy's official residence since. Edinburgh is one of those many ancient cities that is hailed as the most haunted with the shades of countless unknown men, women and children said to still walk. From victims of the plagues which would leave harrowing scars on the city's history, to phantom coaches, spectral hounds and long-lost warriors, there are many dark and eerie places to visit in the city. Removed at the height of 19th century improvements, for many a year, the folk of Edinburgh's old town had tried their very best to avoid a house that was infamous for its ghosts. 
Standing once where now Victoria Street carves its colourful, picturesque way, Major Weir's house was legendary for its associations with hauntings and evil. But later, this ancient house in the Bowhead or Westbow neighbourhood would become a place of greater fear. Named after its most infamous owner, Major Thomas Weir, the house was an ancient, tall, brooding mansion in which the godly Weir and his sister, Grizzle, had lived for many, many years. Like Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll, Weir had been a man apparently of two extreme characters, of pious godliness by day, of demonic evil by night. His voluntary confession of 1670 was the first time the good folk of the city learned of his double character. Until then, he was known simply as a retired soldier of grim countenance, fiercely Presbyterian, and always seen around the city walking with his black staff or stick. Prayer meetings in his house were renowned for his fervour and devotion, and his spoken prayers were famed, attracting large numbers of attendees in this age of religious and political extremism. Weir had lived through the religious wars in Scotland, which had led to the beheading of the King, Charles I, and he remained a committed covenanter, nicknamed Angelical Thomas, or the Bowhead Saint. Falling ill, Weir confessed to a number of sins which shocked his comrades, at the heart of which was his own accusation of being in the service of the devil. The shocked congregation learned of dark and terrible secrets. Physicians were called for who declared him unbalanced, and so he was held in the town's tollbooth, a prison in the heart of the city next to the High Kirk. He told of terrible things that he and his sister Grizzle had done, that they were in league with the devil, performing necromancy, witchcraft, bestiality, incest. Weir's power was straight from Satan and controlled through his walking stick or staff, which the devil himself had bestowed upon him. Described as being made of thornwood and carved with decorations of heads or centaurs, according to some, this was to be one of several enchanted objects to be found in his tall, dark house. Grizzle, when summoned, corroborated her brother's stories to everyone's horror. Grizzle said that she too was a necromancer, with the devil's mark, a clear horseshoe-shaped pattern on her forehead given to her by Satan himself. She told of how a dark stranger, taking her and her brother the Major to the town of Dalkeith in a fiery coach, had proved to be the devil himself, who gave them strange powers. She continued, 
that much of what she and Thomas practised they had gained from their own mother, a witch. Charged with unnatural sexual practices, the two were tried. Both remained unrepentant and were found guilty. Both were strangled and burnt in front of huge crowds who claimed that they took an unnaturally long time to burn, Weir's black staff twisting and jumping in the flames when it was thrown in after him. His last words have been reported as being, Let me alone! I will not. I have lived as a beast and I must die as a beast. Their ashes were buried at the foot of the gallows where they had been burnt. After their long, painful executions complete, stories began to be told of their former home, empty and abandoned. Or maybe not. Perhaps, it was feared, the Wizard of the West Bow remained, in part. Strange lights were reported shining from some of the empty rooms at night, with strange noises, including maniacal laughter, echoing through the night. The Major's staff, his black wood stick, had been known to run errands for him while he lived, it was claimed, and was now back in spectral form, knocking on neighbours' doors and walking about the streets all by itself. A fiery coach was observed, charging up the historic Royal Mile Street, pulled by invisible or headless horses, and halting outside the empty Weir Mansion. The place was thought to be the very embodiment of evil. A century later, another former soldier, William Patullo, set up home in the long empty house with his wife. They are said to have fled after their first night in the place, having been terrified by the unnatural apparition of something resembling a calf, which propped itself up on its hind legs and stared at them as they lay in their bed. Other versions tell that the calf was headless, so quite how it stared is an interesting question. The house was abandoned once again. People tried to avoid the empty building, especially after dark, and it was many years before anyone would live inside. The house slowly decayed and rotted. It was removed around 1830, although some have claimed it was merely incorporated into the building that rose up on the same spot, a large building which is now a Quaker meeting house. And the ghosts? Well, according to some reports, the sound of a coach and horses has been heard charging up the Royal Mile and stopping where Victoria Street now stands. Perhaps the Major and his sister are travelling to their master even yet. H. 
is for Hobkirk, Roxburghshire. Now quiet and peaceful, the locals of Hobkirk were once troubled by a wandering phantom in their kirkyard, so the story goes. Possibly a highwayman, this phantom was laid to rest by their local minister. However, this seems to have terrified the villagers rather than pleasing them. After the minister's own death, some years later, his corpse was stolen from the graveyard to stop him from rising and walking. They tied his corpse with cords, taking him into the wilds to be left to scavenging wild animals. As they carried his cumbersome corpse, however, one of the hands fell out of the bundle and struck one of the men carrying the corpse. They all promptly dropped the body and fled. The body was found and buried again by more sensible parishioners. The minister did not rise again, and the highwayman was also never glimpsed after dark. I is for Iona, Scotland's sacred isle, steeped in pagan legend, tales of fairies, and the birthplace of Christianity in what is now Scotland. The lives of early Christian missionaries, Saints Columba and Adamnan. This historic isle is beautiful, attracting visitors of mystical nature and thousands of tourists, visiting the majestic carved stones, ruined nunnery and ancient, restored Abbey Church of St Mary. Close to the highest point of the island, Dun A, is the Well of Eternal Youth, linked to devotees of St Bridget. Sheehan Moor, the High Fairy Hill, is said to be a place where the veil between our world and the next is very thin indeed. Whether referring to the Fae folk who reign inside the hill, or, as the alternative name for the place implies, others, the Hill of the Angels. There are dark sides to the island's history too. Norsemen, killing the monks in the north of the island in the ninth century, one of their many attacks on the Hebrides, and a terrible bloody event. In 1929, a mysterious death was reported on the island, one which seemed to have occult overtones. A young woman visiting the place, Marie Emily Fornario, known to her friends as Netta, was discovered naked but for a long black cloak on the hillside of Sheehan Moor, the high fairy hill. Nearby, a ceremonial dagger was found, and a crude cross had been carved into the turf on the hillside. It was thought that, seeking the realm of the Fae, Netta had apparently died of exposure, a tragic end to a life. A contributor to the Occult Review, and linked to the Golden Dawn and others, many 
including modern witchcraft revivalist Dion Fortune, suggested that Netta had been the victim of a psychic attack. Indeed, Netta had feared this to be so, telling her island landlady the same shortly before her nocturnal trip to the Hill of the Fairies. That day, she had been discovered by her landlady in a frenzy, hurriedly trying to pack her belongings so she could leave the island immediately and go back home to London. She claimed that several individuals were attacking her telepathically. Her landlady, sceptical of the claims, pointed out kindly that she would need to wait as it was the Sabbath and there were no boats available to take her off the island until the following day. And so Netta said she would stay. The next morning, the landlady looked in on her, but found her room empty. Her body would be discovered two days later. Her death blamed on exposure to the elements. But lurid stories built up soon after, concerning mysterious blue lights, a cloaked man on the island, and strange noises. But these stories, like the dark clouds above Sheehan Moor, have long since evaporated. During her stay of many weeks, Netta had searched the island, visiting as many pre-Christian sites as she could. She was a committed occultist, desperate to learn of a truth she knew existed, whether through tarot readings, meditation or contact with supernatural beings. Perhaps she did find her truth. We'll never know. Her simple gravestone lies in the ancient cemetery beside the Abbey Church. A sad story, and one which continues to intrigue. J is for James, James the Fourth. King of Scots. Scotland's true Renaissance king, and possibly the greatest of the long line of monarchs under whom Scotland flourished. Multilinguist, poet, commissioner of palaces and plays, he would be the last King of Scots to die in battle. Honouring an alliance with France, James would lead an invasion force into the realm of his brother-in-law, Henry VIII of England. France, at war with England once again, looked to her Scottish ally for support. On the eve of the Scottish army's departure, a ghostly herald appeared at the Market Cross of Edinburgh, reading aloud the names of all who were to perish beginning with the name of the king himself. According to the English, some 10,000 of the Scots force were slain in battle, including King James IV. Slaughtered with his army at Flodden Field in the year 1513, the King of Scots' body was captured and taken as a trophy to Richmond Palace in England, where it lay unburied a lasting mockery from the Tudor court. 
His bloody clothes were removed and sent by Henry's wife, Catherine of Aragon, as a trophy to Henry VIII in France. Catherine helpfully suggested he used the tattered, blood-stained coat as a war banner. It is said that the head of James IV was later used as a football by workmen, although evidence for this is slim. And it's thought that eventually the body or the head was dumped into a communal grave at Great St Michael's Church in Wood Street, London. The church was destroyed in the Great Fire of London in 1666, rebuilt and then demolished again in 1897. The head, the body of James IV, lost. A sad end for possibly the most able of the Royal House of Stuart. K is for Kincaid, John Kincaid, witch pricker of Trenent. 1649 may have been when the largest number of people were executed for witchcraft in Scotland in any single year. The figure could be around 300. With the passing of time, this seems almost meaningless, so far off from our enlightened times. The impact of such a horrendous figure seems detached from reality. But imagine an average double-decker bus. Then imagine four of them, full of people. That's roughly how many people were taken from their homes, interrogated and cruelly put to death. That we know of. Accused by neighbours, relations, the church, friends. Some years earlier, a woman from the little village of Stow, Midlothian, Catherine Watson, was charged with witchcraft, having been a wise woman or folk healer. Healers or midwives were often among the accused, perhaps if a charm or medicine they had produced had not worked. It's not known what happened to Catherine, but even if she were not executed, she would have been feared and shunned in her community. Many of the accused who were found innocent starved to death, having been unable to maintain a job or seek support. One unfortunate woman was found dead by the roadside, having succumbed to hunger and the elements. An old poor woman, she was tainted by the mere accusation of witchcraft and was denied a Christian burial, her corpse simply thrown into the river, the Gala Water. A majority of the executed in Scotland were women. Many were poor, but not all. In the village of Stow, again, this time in 1649, four of the victims were women. Isabel Thompson, Margaret Dunham, Janet Henrison, Marion Henrison, and then James Henrison, and also a man of Lauder, a town nearby. His name was not recorded for reasons unclear. 
and the Henderson family? Was that the end of their story? Why was a complete family accused, singled out by their neighbours? Did anyone survive? We'll probably never know. Many of these witch hunts also involved some of the darkest characters in Scotland's history, the witch prickers. Pricking formed part of the torture that could be used legally to extract the truth, with victims essentially being repeatedly stabbed. Some prickers were alleged to use needles with retractable points, thus causing no harm to the accused and proving their guilt. Matthew Hopkins, the so-called Witchfinder General, may be the most remembered individual in England thanks to Hammer Films, but in Scotland, John Kincaid is perhaps even more repulsive. Probably from the town of Tranent in East Lothian, Kincaid would earn a lucrative income discovering witches in the Lothians, Fife, Southern Counties and elsewhere. And in 1649 he was in the little village of Stow too. For Stow's Margaret Dunham's guilt, he was paid six Scots pounds. He was also paid three Scots pounds for food and lodgings for himself and his manservant in the local lodging house. Kincaid was feared for his cruelty and, if summoned, there would have been little hope for the accused. In the sight of the Minister of the Kirk, the five people of Stow and the anonymous man of Lauder were incarcerated in the Bailey's house and church, and then taken to a spot next to the river, the Gala Water, strangled or worried at the stake and burned. Kincaid made a considerable income from finding witches. He confessed to fraud, having led many to their deaths, directly responsible for the deaths of dozens throughout many parts of Scotland, including a woman in her 80s in the witch hunts of 1649 and 1661. Arrested in 1662 following complaints of his cruelty, he confessed to using deception in his witch hunts. He was released on bail, given his age and state of health. He would die in his bed, peacefully. L is for Leith ancient port associated with plague, war, train-spotting and fairies. An ancient place with a fascinating history, Leith was a proud town that stayed fiercely independent of neighbouring Edinburgh until 1920. The fairy boy of Leith was a character who horrified 17th century readers before disappearing into myth. A young lad of around 10 years old, servant to a local merchant, little is known about him, even his name. But he lives on in legend as the little drummer to the little folk, at feasts 
always on Thursdays, which took place under Calton Hill, overlooking the city of Edinburgh, a dwelling place of the King and Queen of Elfame, the Fairy Realm. He boasted to his master of his powers. Who else, after all, could travel to France and back in a night? His master tried following him to the fairy realm, but on every occasion, anyone trying to watch him lost him at the approach to the hill. He simply appeared to disappear. He would lead his pursuers there one last time, entering his enchanted other world, never to appear again. Details of this tale appear as early as 1684. Richard Bovitt's forgotten Pandemonium, or the Devil's Cloister, apparently taken from first-hand account. Like Sinclair's Satan's Invisible World Discovered of 1685, Pandemonium was a book which used the supernatural as religious propaganda. The Fear of Fairies of hidden worlds and supernatural beings was a rich and ancient seam of detail. Stories of the Fae, fairies, the people of peace, would stretch over the centuries. The Scots were afraid of their power, of their ability to enchant, to steal children and replace them with substitutes or changelings. Ancient myth? Perhaps. But visitors to many parts of Scotland reportedly see them still. M is for men. Men of Green. The Green Man, well known to architectural historians, folklorists, and those of many faiths or none, peer out at us from ancient churches, on carved gravestones, from old, elaborate, dark pieces of furniture and ornaments. But does anyone know exactly who the Green Man is? We'll look at this another time in detail. But now the clock has struck 13, bringing with it another witching hour. Time for us to depart for now. Next time we'll look at the second half of the alphabet and another 13 of Scotland's weirdest places, people or things that go bump in the night. Thanks for listening. Until next time, That was Gordon Stewart. Check out his blog at borderlandscotland.wordpress.com. This episode was written by Gordon Stewart. It was produced and radiophonically designed by me, Nick Cole Hamilton. This episode also featured Tony Brunford. Check out his new podcast, Scottish Memories, and his YouTube channel, The Brunfords. This is a You Better Run Media production. Join us again soon for more Tales from Weird Scotland.